Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. So we all know that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know that you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries at the Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall, it's like a farmer's market, and it's filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their own reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers, and who knows, one day maybe your reeds will be for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool row. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Elite, two years. Can you believe it? No, <laughs> I can't believe it, but I'm so grateful for it. On, in some ways, it feels like it just started, like we haven't been doing it that long. And in other ways, it feels like we've been doing this forever and it's just always been a part of what we do. This started out as just an idea that you and I had. And here we are two years later. That's wild. It's wonderful. It is. And uh, you and I were talking before we pushed record and some people have asked us, what are you going to do when you run out? And it's like, honey, we only get 12 per instrument per year. There are so many fantastic orchestras, fantastic pedagogues. We're never going to run out. Yeah. And we also really want to bring to you, the listener, a diverse variety of types of amazing double read career that's out there. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're just going to bring the best and the brightest to you always. And we're never going to run out because in our field, there are so many best and brightest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so much depth of talent and of perspectives and approaches to a career. We've got um, people write us all the time with suggestions. You should oh, yeah. do this person or someone who does this type of thing. And we add it to the list. The list mm-hmm. is long. We're always like, yes, I agree. (laughs) Why haven't they done this yet? It's coming. It's Mm -hmm. coming. It's just, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we're not professional podcasters. We are. (laughs) We squeeze this in among the many things. I have had a couple people go, will you ever go weekly? And it's like, girl, no. (laughs) That would be fantastic. But um, there would be a Jackie-shaped hole in the side of the building because... (laughs) 
It's just, uh, it's a manageable amount of work twice a month. Uh, Mm -hmm. More than that, it might get a little cray cray. (laughs) Oh, and I'm just hashtag blessed. Very grateful to have, to have the opportunity to do this with you. I just like, it's such a dream come true. You know what I mean? Well, yes. And the listeners may not be aware that, of course, we met working together at a university, which we left for other positions at the same time. And I remember the last time we had lunch, we were kind of saying goodbye to living in the same town. Mm -hmm. And you were like, I know you're an introvert and you better maintain a friendship with me. When I call (laughs) you, you better pick up the phone. And I was just like, oh man, she is reading me. She knows. (laughs) That whole first year I was like, don't call Jackie. She doesn't like the phone. Don't call her. Just text her. And then we were both moving and I was like, this is not sustainable if you are allergic to the phone. So, but so this has been kind of the perfect medium where, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking, we're in Mm -hmm. close communication. So, you know, if you want to maintain a friendship over a long distance, start a small business with your friend. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) It's foolproof advice. Yes. (laughs) So what is the topic for today? Oh, it's gratitude. What's that? (laughs) I'm just bitter. So there are a couple of musical things that I'm grateful for. And one of them was the listeners already know there. I mean, it was a concert that changed my life. My dad in middle school took me to a Hartford Symphony concert and there was an oboe solo and fell in love with the sound. And that was the moment I was like, I want that. I don't know what it is, but I want it. (laughs) Um, But then there was another concert during my doctorate that also changed my life. And it was um, my then acquaintance and now wife, her chamber music recital at Florida State, where we were students together. Um, And over the course of rehearsing and preparing for that recital, we got to know each other. And we haven't looked back since. And I am so grateful for it. Every day, I think I'm so glad I said yes to that recital. Well, I met my husband in the marching band. So... (laughs) I don't know that I'm so grateful for. I'm grateful for my husband. I think I, the marching band. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, anyway, sorry. I don't want to get too sappy, but I had to be honest. Uh, some of my double read gratitude that came to mind. Honestly, as I think about it, at least over the past year, the Don Green book that I read, Fight Your Fear and Win, really gave me some tools that at least for me were extremely effective in helping me get out of my head and really be able to enjoy performing in a way that I don't think I was completely robbed of before, but it's just brought it to this whole other level um, in a way that I'm extremely happy and grateful for. I can't recommend those books highly enough. For the people for whom they work, they really work. I don't know if they work for everybody. Um, We went through the book in my studio class this semester, and for some students, it really resonated. For others, it was kind of like, yeah, this is fine. Um, But for me, that is probably one of the biggest things I am most grateful for that came into my life over the past year. I love it. I've also been watching a ton of um, Aaron videos. (laughs) Yes, Drag Race, Housewives. 
I've been watching so much reality TV that it's like seeping into my pedagogy, which I don't think is like <laughs> maybe Listen, the best idea. We'll see. I have been referencing the Great British Baking Show in all of my lessons. So. Oh my God. We cannot even get on the British Baking Show or we will lose our entire listenership because <laughs> this episode will be three hours long. Although I have always thought it would be fun to do like a double read spin or a musician spin on the Bake Off. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, challengers, you have to make a a read that can play um, a high F at pianissimo in ten minutes. Go and uh-huh. <laughs> or something. I don't know how it would look. And then you would have hilarious criticisms that you would say over and over again. Yes, like it just doesn't have the layers. <laughs> You can have a signature style that you do. You have technical challenges and then you have the showstopper. And so I've always thought it would be cool to do like a music competition or even like, I don't know, juries or something in the style of the British Bake Off. That could be fun. And then every week you vote star baker and then you vote someone out of the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, I didn't really think that through. Maybe that's not the most nurturing and the person who has to leave us this week is... <laughs> uh, so getting back to gratitude, we opened it up for comments on our social media and we got some comments from you guys. Um, LaBaron says, read making has become a creative outlook for me outside of just playing. It helps me connect with my instrument after making a great read. LaBaron, teach me your ways. Yes. Well, Baron, you're such a positive influence on us. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to be more like you. Mm-hmm. Brianna is grateful for her oboe and bassoon teachers at UNCG, Dr. Barrett and Dr. Burns. Yes. Emily piggybacked on that and said she's grateful for her bassoon teachers, Dr. Ryan Reynolds and Dr. Kristen Schillinger. Um, lots of teacher love which of course we echo. We have nothing but love for our teachers and mentors, of course. Oh yeah, definitely. And then of course, Victoria is thankful for all of the double read influences in in her life. Some of her best friends and the best mentor musician could ask for are double read players. Beautiful. You know, the double read community is pretty great when people who play other instruments are coming up on our pages to tell us how great we are. Oh, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Emily also wanted to give a shout out to Squirrely Stash and Reads by Stephanie for fueling her read thread addiction. Of course, this is not an ad, but I have to echo, good thread will get me super pumped to make some reads. Not only good thread, but good thread with a whimsical name. Give it to me. Yes. And then you had the great thought to do this topic based on and inspired by the recent Thanksgiving holiday. And we wanted to just kind of give a little bit of love for people during this holiday season. Yeah. You know, maybe you're going home for winter break and home is stressful for you, or you are going through something difficult. We want to send love to you because the holiday season can be really tough sometimes. Yeah, we have tens of listeners in the LGBT community, listeners who are maybe grieving a family loss, and uh, it can be a hard season for people. And so we just wanted to give you love. And, you know, the, the great thing about music making is we can be a community 
for each other and leaning into all this stuff we just said we're grateful for teachers and mentors and studio mates and music that we can really get lost in the process of making so um we're thinking about you and we just wish you an awesome holiday season full of love and support and happy read making Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged shaped and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. If you're a bassoonist who needs great quality reeds, look no farther than Go Bassoon. Handcrafted by Lee Miller Munoz, these reeds are both high quality and affordable. She also makes contrabassoon reeds. You can find Go Bassoon at www.gobassoon.com. We are beyond thrilled to welcome to the podcast Milan Turkovich, internationally renowned bassoonist and conductor. Welcome, Milan. Thank you so much for coming on Double Read Dish. Thank you very much. I would love to start by asking how you originally came to the bassoon. Well, that's the most uh, frequently asked question. How did you choose the bassoon? And um, usually I say, well, it's, the answer is very simple. I didn't know anything about the bassoon when I was little, and uh, we had no money. And that's a disappointing answer because, you know, you could say, oh, I love the bassoon. And since I was three, I wanted to play the bassoon. Nothing of that. Um, there were very few uh, talents in the field of bassoon when I grew up in Vienna. And so the president of the academy told my mother, well, if you are interested that your son is successful soon, then choose the bassoon. First of all, because we have a very great teacher in our school, that's Karl, that was Karl Oelberger, famous Karl Oelberger. And secondly, he will have great chances as there are not that many talents around. And uh, so this is how I came to the bassoon. And the same evening I went to the opera and looked from the balcony down into the orchestra to see how my instrument looks like. And I saw my teacher play the uh, Valkyrie by Richard Wagner. Uh, so that was a, you know, a very spontaneous decision uh, without any particular question of uh, love or attention or choice of a particular instrument. The love for the instrument, that came later. Could you talk to us about developing that love for the bassoon and your educational journey? Yeah, during uh, my first years of studies, I was still in high school. So I finished my high school degree while I was studying at the academy, which was very, very tough time. And then something happened in one of the lessons that Karl Oelberger said to me for some reason, well, you know, the bassoon is no solo instrument. And that made me very angry. And still today, I'm very thankful to him for saying this, because this inspired me to uh, prove the opposite, you know, that the instrument was a solo instrument, because why would 
Antonio Vivaldi write 37 concerto and why this uh, Mozart concerto, why there are two pieces by Weber and by Hindemith and so on and so on. So this created the feeling for uh, trying to establish the bassoon as a solo instrument, which it was not in my youth. Uh, today we're talking about a completely different situation. Back then there was nobody, uh, well, there was probably one person who would travel with the bassoon as a soloist and no, no one else. So I was among the, the first people who uh, made recordings uh, that were distributed worldwide and that gave the bassoon a really very, very great and precious support. Especially, I was thankful that Deutsche Grammophon, you know, one of the great, great labels in the world, uh, let me produce two records. So that's how it went relatively quickly with the solo career. Would you care to talk to us about your um, training and educational journey? Well, my training in the school was not different from the training in any other university, music university. I had all the courses, uh, theory courses, contemporary music and uh, chamber music, orchestra. By the way, young Zubin Mehta uh, conducted our student orchestra and I sat in the orchestra. Claudio Abado was there oh as a student conducting class of uh, Hans Swarovski. And we all had great fun together. And um, this is just now a little sidestep from, from our subject. Um, a few years ago, when I told Zubin Mehta, um, like, you know, jokingly, Zubin, excuse me, but I'm also a conductor now. He said, well, that's very good. We need young people in the field. <laughs> it's funny because he's only a few years older than I. <laughs> I would love to hear about when you were first starting as a young professional and could you kind of walk us through, I know it's an extensive career, but at least the highlights and that initial development as you were just starting as a professional. Well, I had the chance to play in the Vienna State Opera, which is, you know, the orchestra, the Vienna Philharmonic, uh, when I was still studying. So that was really great that I could uh, learn, study around uh, 22 or 24 operas within two years. Those were my two last studying years. And very often I would sit next to my teacher. Uh, that was a really great starting point, which helped me a lot in the later time to play in opera because, you, you know, opera is a very, very complicated field for orchestra musicians. It's a very special training that you have there. And later on, when I played in the Cologne Oper in, in Germany, I felt already very stable about playing uh, in opera orchestra. Um, otherwise, um, my first great job, orchestra job, was the Bamberg Symphony Orchestra in Germany, where I stayed for five years. Uh, after that, I decided to return to Vienna uh, for a very simple reason. I knew that being a soloist is easier if you are in one of the large music centers, which Vienna definitely is. So I 
I, had a, I was asked by the Vienna Symphony Orchestra to join them. And I was there for 16 years and um, stayed with the Vienna Symphony until 1983. And that was the year when I got my first uh, tenure of a teaching job. That was the Mozarteum in Salzburg. And immediately I decided, okay, that's it with the orchestra. And I quit orchestra in 1983. So I was on my own. My agenda book belonged to me completely. And that helped a lot to establish a lot of uh, different um, activities. For example, my activity for the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center in New York, mm -hmm. where I joined in um, 1992, staying there until 2011. At the same time, I founded the Ensemble Wien Berlin, a quintet with two members of the Berlin Philharmonic and two members of the Vienna Philharmonic. And I was, so to say, the fifth wheel on the carriage, not being with one of the two orchestras. And I spent 26 wonderful years with this quintet. But also since my move to Vienna, I became member of Consentus Musicus Wien, the ensemble led by Nicolas Hanoncourt, who, as you probably know, died three years ago. Um, and then uh, about 30 years ago, my conducting started. Uh, I had already started conducting when I was a student because it happened that uh, the last partner of my mother before her death was a very well-known conductor. So I had my conducting lessons at home, so to say, when I was very young already. And um, then the bassoon career more or less stopped this conducting. But then it happened that Italian orchestras invited me to be a soloist. And some Ital Italian orchestras asked the soloist to conduct the concert as well. So I felt, oh, that's really, that works quite fine. Uh, conducting a concerto grosso by Handel and playing the Weber concerto and uh, conducting a Haydn symphony after the intermission. Although I have to admit that after the years when I did this more often, I realized it's awfully tiring and demanding to conduct and to be a soloist. So I stopped this business after a while. And then gradually as I came close to retirement from my school, the last school that was the Vienna University for Music, um, I decided, okay, now I have to schedule my departure from the bassoon. And I scheduled it very carefully because during my life, I have experienced many cases of musicians who keep on playing and who don't uh, take care of the moment where they may not reach their 100% capacity that they had before. Mm -hmm. So I have scheduled these exits earlier before than they were necessary. And um, so carefully, I stopped with Ensemble in Berlin in 2009 and with Consentus Musicus in 2011, and at the same time with Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center 
um, New York Times wrote me a beautiful farewell review uh, and uh, with lots of peace and friendship with all the musicians, I left and I quit the bassoon. So you're talking to a conductor today. And I, <laughs> and I, I can only talk about the past as a bassoonist, but if you ask me about reeds or length of reeds or mandrills or any, any kind of technical equip, equipment, you will talk to someone who was actually happy to give up those things and just <laughs> concentrate on studying scores and spend uh, whole time with scores. I have about, I don't know, 15 inches of scores on my desk right now that have to be studied for this autumn and uh, that fulfills my life. And um, yeah, the bassoon. So the bassoon is um, not a main factor in my life anymore, although I have to make one, I have to admit something. Uh, I have a very good friend who is a very well-known jazz trumpet player here in Vienna. Franz Kogelmann is his name. And um, he said, well, it, couldn't you once more play the bassoon and play in a production that I'm planning? So two weeks ago, I played in the most famous Austrian jazz club called Porgy and Bess. I played some music by this Franz Kogelmann, which was the second encounter with jazz after Wynton Masaris, with whom I was lucky to perform about 20 years ago on a nationwide tour in the United States. And um, so I played this one concert. I had to train for two months to be ready to play, to improvise, to play with a wonderful septet of uh, great musicians from all over Europe including John Clark, horn player from New York, whom you probably will know. Mm -hmm. And but then I said, that was it. Okay, that was this one time and and so that much as I can talk to you about the bassoon, <laughs> unless uh, you have special questions about the things that happened in the past. Well, I would love to know how your experiences as a bassoonist and your experiences as a conductor inform each other? That's a very good question. That's a wonderful question. Um, I very often think about this interaction between instrumentalists and conductors because I was one and I'm the other one now, or I was both at the same time also. And um, last year, I thought about this, uh, that factor especially much as I was conducting a South American tour with um, Dvorak Seventh Symphony and Dvorak Eighth Symphony and Sibelius Violin Concerto, Bruch Violin Concerto, so very demanding orchestra repertoire. And I thought back to my orchestra years and I realized, well, there's that one solo which I thought so important. The bassoon is so important in that particular passage. And when I see it from the conductor's position, 
I realized, well, that's just one color, you know, it's one mm -hmm. part of the whole thing. And uh, it is not really that important. So that uh, could show you uh, somehow what the difference is between a life of an instrumentalist and a conductor. The conductor has to see the whole thing, the um, interaction between the instruments, the interaction with the soloist and the orchestra. Whereas when you are, where you are in the orchestra, you're very much in demand to play together with others, to uh, follow dynamical changes, dynamical ranges. So you are very much considering your own little work within that big orchestra. And the conductor has or should have the overview. So the single instrument is not that important for him anymore. When we announced to our listeners that you were going to be on the podcast, we had a record number of submissions. We actually probably won't be able to ask all of the questions, but I want to kind of start with our listener questions now. And we had okay. three different people ask really similar questions. Um, so Fernando, Vincent, and Brendan are all curious about how you have seen the world of music and more specifically the world of bassoon playing change over the course of your career? Do you find that people play differently today from how you started? And what do you see as the future of classical music? Big questions, but they're all curious. <laughs> Good question, big subject. Give me two hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, there are enormous changes happening. I cannot talk about the changes um, in different continents, but I think I can talk about many countries in Europe and probably parts of the United States. First of all, quality of bassoon playing in Europe has risen dramatically. I just recently was at the Aeolus competition in Düsseldorf, international competition that uh, was this year called for oboe, bassoon and French horn. And again, I was amazed about 29 fantastic bassoonists from all over the world who went into the competition and only one of them could win. So uh, that was tough showing me that uh, reaching a particular goal as a musician today becomes more difficult because there are so many great players. Yeah. Now, I want to be very frank with you about uh, the two continents. When I was young, when I was studying, American students came to uh, work with my teacher. We had always had Americans in our class and their standard was probably superior to the standard we all had. Um, in the meantime, things have changed because as I mentioned, the standard in Europe has risen uh, seriously. Uh, the standard in the United States for me um, experience uh, during the years, the 90s and the beginning of this century, some kind of stagnation. Hmm. 
and I can talk about that because I was giving masterclasses, uh, particular uh, schools in the United States, like the Juilliard School, the Manhattan School of Music, the Yale School of Music. And uh, I got the feeling that there was a stagnation over a certain number of years. And then last year, actually, that was in April 2017, um, I had another masterclass at Juilliard School and the standard was fantastic. It, it has risen suddenly, probably within five or 10 years. So there's something going on there. What is going on there, in, in my observation, has been going on here for a long time already. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in other words, 30 or 35 years ago, bassoonists from South America, North America, uh, also from Japan, would have great chances to succeed in European orchestras. In, meantime, in the meantime, the chances have become much, much smaller because we have so many great players here in Europe. And if I think of, about my classes that I had in Salzburg and in Vienna, the standard went up year by year incredibly. Another listener asks, how many bassoons have you played professionally in your lifetime and which one was your favorite? Second answer, none was my favorite. <laughs> and I've been playing four instruments all together, four heckle instruments. The first one was given to me by the school because I had no money to buy a bassoon for a long time. And um, just before my first orchestra job, which started in, uh, at my age of 20, I was able to buy my first heckle bassoon. That was a series 10,000 bassoon. And then, oh no, it was five bassoons. I have to correct myself. Then later on, I had another bassoon of which I got rid of, but it was also a beautiful instrument. And um, I still hold three instruments in my house, of which I gave away one to a very dear colleague and student um, who doesn't want to wait for six or ten years to get a heckle bassoon. <laughs> Brendan would like to know who was or is your favorite conductor to work with as a soloist or as an orchestral musician? That is impossible to answer. Uh, this, is, this would be, if I would mention one name, it would be unfair to uh, lots of other names. Mm -hmm. I know which conductors I didn't like, but those I would probably not mention here. Okay. But um, I really had great heroes. And um, as a conductor myself, I try to learn from my experiences that I had with these conductors either as an orchestra musician or as a soloist. But certainly, Nicolas Hanoncourt was a great inspiration for me. Carlo Maria Giulini was one of the absolutely most admired uh, conductors all over Europe. Uh, he has died too early, but I had beautiful experiences playing with him as a soloist and as an orchestra musician. And Josef Keilbert, he is probably not known in the United States at all, 
Josef Keilbert. He was the music director of the Munich Opera and also music director of Bamberg Symphony Orchestra, my first big job in orchestra. Those were people that I admired a lot and I could name you another five or 10. Uh, of course, Riccardo Muti, with whom I also had a beautiful ch uh, ch two chances to play chamber music, Muti at the piano, and Jimmy Levine, with whom I recorded pretty much music for Deutsche Grammophon with the Ensemble Wien Berlin. And I could go on, but um, I, I think that was a nice choice so far. Mark sent in a question and he says he just loves your sound and wants to know how you get your sound to be so smooth. Well, uh, a very often asked question and is one of the questions that cannot really be answered in words because the sound that you produce first happens in your brain. Mm -hmm. Of course, the reed helps, the vocal helps, the instrument helps, all of that helps you. But your brain and your commitment or your idea of musical instrument, of musical in interpretation influences your sound. I'll give you an example. I was several times at the IDRS conferences. The last two times I was there not as a con uh, bassoonist, but as a conductor. But in one of the early IDRS conferences, I think it was in Los Angeles, I gave a recital and I played some Baroque music, some romantic music and some 20th century music. I don't remember what it was. And after that concert, there was a question and answer period. And so somebody asks me, uh, Milan, you have now played uh, three different periods. Obviously, you have played with three different reads because you sounded so different in all three pieces. I said, of course not. I've only used one read. And then I told this person the same thing I told you. The idea, the concept of the sound, first of all, happens in your brain, in your feeling, in your understanding for the kind of music. Noah would like to know what was it like working with Ray Still to record the Poulenc Trio? And maybe we could combine that with um, another question about your experiences in recording. What were some of your favorite works to record? Oh, <laughs> where should I start? Well, <laughs> Ray, Ray Still was fascinating. He was a wonderful friend. He was a difficult friend. He was a crazy person. He was a crazy musician. He would risk everything when he was playing and he was very exciting. And uh, aside of playing music with him and recording, we also had wonderful times uh, like, you know, watching Charlie Chaplin move, movies, or the, this kind of thing. So, um, I remember one time being together in Mexico City and we had recital there, master classes there for uh, university. And uh, we stayed in the Hotel Camino Real, which is a rectangle building where you have endless hallways 
So we would walk around these hallways, always going around the entire hotel, probably 200 yards, 200 yards, 200 yards, 200 yards. And we would talk about life, about reads, about music, about people, about conductors. He would tell me his famous story with Jean Martineau in Chicago, where he won the court case. Uh, Jean Martineau uh, accused Ray Still of reading books during the rehearsal and fired him. <gasps> and fired him. And uh, so they went to court. Ray Still went to court. And his um, uh, arguments were very simple. He said, did I, mess, mi did I mess up anything? Did I miss any entrance in the rehearsals? So what actually happened? And this case was actually lost by the conductor, which is wow. <laughs> very unusual in those years. <laughs> Today, the story would not be that unusual anymore. Yeah, so that was Ray Still. I have to say that among the, I don't know how many solo recordings I made, it must have been around 12 or 14. There are only two that I would like to listen to today. All the others I dismiss in, in my own feeling because hmm. I'm not happy with them at all. Wow. Uh, but that's, that's something I'm sharing with many musicians. Uh, you will hear that from many musicians who have been making several recordings that afterwards, when they listen to the first edit, they say, ah, oh, I could have done this or that better. It's, it's just not good. And um, so I don't have favorite recordings, but I'm quite happy with the Denon CD that I made of some Vivaldi concerti, several Vivaldi concerti. And I'm very happy with my recording of Weber, um, Andante Rondo Ungarese, and, and the concerto, with Sir Neville Mariner, which was a beautiful, beautiful recording experience. Sir Neville was uh, just a fantastic conductor, not only in concert, but especially in recordings. I think he has made over 1,000 recordings, and you could feel that when he was um, working with you. I just remember recording these two Weber pieces in two sessions, and uh, we had very little time because those two sessions were even not full three-hour sessions because he had to leave for London and the concert was the night before the concert couldn't be recorded because it was a different venue and then we were f we went out for dinner and I said to Sir Neville well this was going to be very hard you know those two difficult pieces um, he said, "Ah, oh, don't worry. I have to go to. The, I have to reach my plane. So we we will be finished by five o'clock in the afternoon." And um, I said, "I really cannot imagine that we will be finished so fast." So to make the story short, uh, everything was very tight, and he didn't make you feel it was tight. Mm -hmm. And he was so good to avoid mistakes, and the orchestra. Uh, the Stuttgart Radio Orchestra was so clever to help me. They helped me to make mistakes. They let me make mistakes and tried not to make mistakes. And then he did some beautiful little things, like what would you do if the strings are too loud accompanying the bassoon in a soft passage? You would say, okay, one stand less. Uh, yeah, right? And you would 
leave the fourth or fifth stand out. What he did, he left the first stand out. You can do that with a very good orchestra because the first stand was sitting more close to the microphones and the sound suddenly was so much more tender. The tricks like that he had, and I'm trying to use these tricks uh, now as I'm conducting recordings myself. <laughs> it's nice to learn from the best. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Tim would like to know, what was it like working with members of the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, and how has it evolved over your years of experience with them? Oh, that was so beautiful. They're, they're, those are years that I care for so much, and I love to think about them so much. And it was one of the most difficult decisions for me to say, people, I'm deciding to leave in a year from now and look for someone younger. Someone younger should be with you. Um, and they said, oh, come on, do you really want to do that? And that was, of course, very comfortable to hear that, you know, to leave before <laughs> somebody says, well, don't you think you should, and so on. Uh, I made wonderful friends at Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, those wonderful wind players, those incredible string players. And, uh, uh, I mean, making chamber music is... Uh, more or less the same everywhere in the world. But if you have a certain continuation that you meet season by season and not just festival by festival, then you grow together and certain things fall into place by themselves without talking or thinking about them so much. But also what was so great is that we always had a lot of rehearsal time at Chamber Music Society and they still do. Last year I was there and I conducted something, a contemporary piece by Brett Dean, Australian composer. So I saw all my friends again, but from a different perspective. Our last listener question comes from Adam and he wants to know as a bassoonist, what major musical breakthroughs you had, if there was anything that really um, clicked or made all the difference as you were learning to grow and develop as a musician? I think I mentioned both things already in the beginning. The first one was that my teacher said the bassoon is no solo instrument, right? And that inspired me to prove the opposite. That was the first kick. The second was the fact that Deutsche Grammophon produced with me as a very young man, an unknown man, those two recordings uh, with six bassoon concerti. And those recordings were available all over the world. And that, of course, helped a lot to build up the solo career. I think there's not much more to say to that, aside of the fact that these two recordings, which helped me so much, uh, later on, I would have done completely different in a stylistic way and in the way of playing the bassoon. As I mentioned, um, I'm not happy with these recordings anymore. So you began your career more as an orchestral player and then segued into being a soloist. And I feel like 
a lot of times we can think of these paths as different or as specialties in a musician. And so I wonder if your voice or approach to the bassoon changed when you transitioned from orchestral playing to solo playing, or if it was very much the same. Was there any difference in how you approached your career during those two times in your playing? Well, it changed from, you know, from week to week, depending on what I was doing right on the point. Uh, when I was playing in orchestra, uh, I had a very different approach to, to the sound I had to have. Like, you play in unison with the clarinet and you must not play vibrato. I, I know this is something many people don't believe, but uh, it was, at least I believe that, when you play the beginning of Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony and you play in unison with the clarinet, uh, you must uh, take your sound completely back and like melt the sound with the clarinet. On the other side, uh, a week after when I uh, played the Weber Concerto or uh, the Concerto by Sofia Gubaidolina, which by the way, I have uh, been doing as a first performance in many European cities, uh, then you have a completely different approach to, to your sound uh, and not only to your technical uh, difficulties that you have to solve in this particular case. And then number three, chamber music. In Ensemble Wien Berlin, our quintet was very, um, it became very famous for the blend of the sound of the five instruments. And uh, that was because every one of us tried to melt with the sound of the others. So uh, only when there was I don't know, a flute solo or a clarinet solo in a ligeti piece, uh, this instrument will stick out. But for the rest, we really tried to be like some kind of organ sound, like, like an organ piece. Mm. For example, when we played the organ pieces by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart uh, on a recording, we tried very much to find this very particular blend of... Um, having all the instruments um, blending completely together. As a follow-up, you mentioned the Gubaidalina Concerto, and I actually wrote my dissertation on this work. Oh, bravo. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love to hear about your experience in learning and giving various European premieres of this work yeah, well, that was a, a voyage into a very particular kind of music that involved improvisation and at the same time, very, very great exactness, being very exact with, with the low string instruments. Mm -hmm. And um, at one performance, I had the chance to have Sophia there and in the rehearsal and uh, getting some advice from her, uh, which was... Uh, very helpful for me and she you know she is such a such a, um, a person who is burning inside she she has such an inside energy that shows in her music and when you talk with her she takes your hand and you know she, and she says no yeah, yeah do it like this so that was that was wonderful and um, also uh, at this rehearsal with Sofia Gubernolina I understood the ending of this concerto, which is like the bassoon 
place those glissandi, this and then the double basses and the celli come like big monsters toward the bassoon and finally they overwhelm or kill the bassoon or say it, whatever you want to say it. So that was a great experience for me. <clears throat> I think I did around six or seven first performances in different European cities and uh, it was a great two-year period. Not all composers give you some help. When you play for them, you play their piece and you have finished that movement and you ask, well, how is that? You say, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, just follow the tempo. You know, they, they don't tell you anything particular that would help you. And I had one very funny experience. Uh, maybe you know that I did the world premiere of Jean-Francais trio for oboe, bassoon, and piano mm -hmm. in Rotterdam. And uh, we were rehearsing on a houseboat in Amsterdam. The pianist from Amsterdam and oboist from Amsterdam and, and I. And we, we were playing the piece for the first, you know, no, no one knew the piece. It's very hard to get to know a piece when you haven't heard it before. Mm -hmm. And then there's one passage where the bassoon has a kind of improvisation alone. And it says in tempo. And uh, I f just thought, well, this is like a cadenza. And I'm going to play this very freely. And the pianist stopped me and said, now wait, this, is, this says a tempo. Why do you play it so, so freely? I said, oh, no, I just feel like that. So, so we were arguing for a while. And I said, no, you know what? We call Jean-Francais now. And I knew that Jean-Francais was in his house in south, southern France. And since I speak French, I was the one to pick up the phone. And I said, Maestro, we have a problem here. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, composers very often, after they have finished the piece, they don't know what you're talking about. They <laughs> because they're composing something else. So uh -huh. I said to him, okay, I play that passage for you. And I put the phone on the piano and I played. And he said, this is good. He said. And I said, but that's not how you wrote it. He said, oh, that doesn't matter. You just play how you feel. You know, this is also another approach of composers to their music. <laughs> So much about composers. <laughs> I love it. I was curious about, because you have such incredible experience as an orchestral musician and as a soloist and also as a conductor, what are some areas that young musicians should concentrate in in order to be you know, a great orchestral player? What do you look for as a conductor in a great orchestral bassoonist? I think it's basically two things. You have to have a very perfect sound control, which means you have to have a good breath control, which means also that you have to be very careful in which way you use vibrato. I know that in the past I've been using too much vibrato in general. 
not so much in orchestra, but in general. And uh, when I have the when I have the feeling that most of the listeners of this program will be in the United States, um, my suggestion would be think more about the use of vibrato. There was one American festival where I um, played first bassoon as a guest, and it was some Tchaikovsky symphony. And there was one passage where we were, you know, two bassoons and two clarinets, and the second bassoon is sitting next to me was playing this passage with vibrato. And I said to him, would you mind playing this without vibrato? And he thought for a while and he said, well, you know, when I play without vibrato, I feel I am boring. Hmm. So that's one point to, to think over about your sound production. It's not all just about reads and about read sizes and read lengths and all of that. It's, as I mentioned before, it's what happens in your brain about your sound production and especially about your function that you have within an orchestra. That, that's the most important thing. And when you hear the celli play and you play in the same uh, range as the celli do, uh, listen to the celli and try to adjust to them. And when the conductor feels that you do that, that you have your ears open, that in other words, that you have radar antennas uh, turning to the other players, then the conductor will love your playing. I'm sure there are too many to list, but would you mind choosing one or two favorite memories of a past performance in your career as a bassoonist that you could tell us about? Yes, it was, um, first it was my best performance of the Weber Concerto ever. It happened. It was in Stockholm with the Stockholm Philharmonic Orchestra. And uh, I still have a recording of that. And a year ago, I listened to it. I've, I've rarely listened to a recording of myself. But I thought, well, that was such a good memory. Let's listen back to that. And I thought, wow, it was really, it was good and it was perfect. The, the orchestra was perfect. The conductor was wonderful. And that was one. And the other one was the Mozart Concerto with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra several years ago at the IDRS conference. And Alex Klein played, played the Mozart Oboe Concerto. And uh, we both, after the concert, realized that we were afraid of the other one. You know, we, <laughs> we both at the beer, drinking a beer, we realized that we were both afraid that one would outdo the other one. <laughs> and, uh, it seems that it didn't happen so that's also a num memory number two <laughs> that's lovely <laughs> in closing I would love to know uh, what advice you give for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours I really cannot answer that within, within five sentences probably not even within 20 sentences one of my students once asked me this question, well, what, what shall I do to become a soloist? And I said, there are so many factors that have to fall into place. It's not only your work, but of course, it's partly your own work and your 
your own approach to your profession. And uh, I would say one important base for developing a career is that you don't study only your instrument, but that you study, that you know a lot about the music that you're going to perform, that you know, uh, I give you an example. Often in my lessons in the school, I had to inspire students to read Leopold Mozart's violin school or, or Quant's uh, flute school. And many people didn't know that. And by the way, even many violin players don't know Leopold Mozart's violin school, but that's just on the side. And we're talking about the bassoon. Uh, so the intellectual aspects that are surrounding our music are very, very important for development. And generally, I would say, if you concentrate too much on technical aspects, like the means with which you play, like whether you have a Heckel bassoon or a Moldenhauer bassoon, a Fox bassoon or whatever, they are secondary to how you approach the music you're going to play. Well, that brings us to the close of this interview. We can't thank you enough for your time. I know our listeners are just waiting to get this, so I can't wait to share this with them. We really appreciate you giving us your time. Thank you, thank you, it was fun. We hope you enjoyed that interview. Thank you so much for joining us for two years of Double Read Dish. We can't appreciate you enough. Do not forget to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to follow us individually, Galit is at Hello Oboe. I am at Wilson Bassoon. And you can listen to us anywhere you get your podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and SoundCloud. Galit, who do we have coming up next? The one and only Sherry Seiler, Associate Principal Oboe of the New York Philharmonic. So excited. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads. <laughs>